This is my conversation with Don Watkins. Don is a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. He's the co-author, along with Yaron Brook, of Free Market Revolution and Equal is Unfair. We discuss Ayn Rand's idea of the virtue of selfishness, why sacrificing is not good for the world, the transactional nature of love, epistemology, wealth, and more. As you'll hear, Don and I have different views on how knowledge is created. We were unable to settle the debate in this conversation, but we both put forth our understandings of epistemology. Either way, this adds up to a very interesting conversation with plenty of counterculture ideas. To support this podcast, please check the link in the episode description, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. For many people, the word selfishness is a synonym of evil, and altruism, doing good for others even at a harm to oneself, is considered virtuous. You share the view of Ayn Rand, who thought of selfishness as a virtue. Can you describe the cultural connotation and perhaps this false dichotomy of happiness without morality and morality without happiness, and then also explain why being selfish is good for the world? Sure. Well, I think culturally, the way that selfishness is thought of is somebody who thinks of nobody but themselves, and certainly they don't value anything except themselves. So you can think about, for instance, the husband or wife who walks on, on the family without taking responsibility for the children or anything like that. It's will often be put as self-centered. And Ayn Rand, and certainly I, like, that's obviously bad. That's not a good thing to be. And there is that kind of phenomenon. But to label that as selfish is superficial. And I'll come back to why in a second. But it's also um, results in what Ayn Rand called a package deal, which is it's grouping together things by non-essentials. Because even though that's what we would label as selfish, right? All I think about is myself. I don't think about other people at all. Who else do we put in the category of the selfish? It's not just the deadbeat dad or mom who walks out on their family, but we'll put productive people who earn a fortune through creating a successful business or something like that. And to put those two in the same category, and certainly in the moral same moral category, is disastrous because what it ends up doing is it ends up smearing moral noble people who are creative, who don't harm other people who don't sacrifice other people on the quest for their own happiness. It groups them with the people who really make life hell for others. And the reason that I say it's superficial is because if you actually look at the functioning of those people, it's not that they're actually thinking about their interests. They're not thinking about what's genuinely good for me, what is going to help me thrive in the long term. Um, what is myself? What are my values? What are my core, core principles? that the, they have no self in which to be centered, is one way Ayn Rand put it. And so if you really look at, I think a better term for that mentality is narcissism. But narcissism is self-doubt centered. It's that I'm, I don't have any le- real self-esteem. And therefore, what I'm really concerned with is kind of short-range feeling superior to others and uh, blindly going after what I happen to want in the moment. So if so I think the starting point is to get that that is not what we're, I'm talking about when I'm talking about selfishness. What I'm talking about is being a, on a quest for the best life that you can achieve. And then there's a question of how to achieve it. And I don't think that is obvious. I don't think many of the things people think are good for you and actually support your happiness are good. And 
we can delve more into that. But the you mentioned this idea of happiness without morality and morality without happiness. And that's really the alternatives that the culture offers you. It's if you're on a pursuit of happiness, fine, no, no like go for it. But you, the idea is you don't need the guidance of morality. Maybe you need the guidance of a psychologist or maybe a self-help guru. But morality, no, morality is not about you. Morality is about being indifferent towards yourself or at least not treating yourself as more important in terms of how you align your choices than other people. And then you have morality without happiness. And that is precisely this idea. It's that what is the good? It's subordinating yourself to others. And if not subordinating yourself, tr being, um, what's the word? Being sort of uh, not prioritizing yourself. Mm -hmm. So it's why it's one of billions of people. But in the end, that really means subordinating yourself to other people because, yeah, there's way more of them than you. So if I'm not treating my interests as any more important than um, the interest of others, well, they're always going to out, you know, count me. And, and so in the end, what we're offered, to put it simply, is the idea of pursue happiness, but you don't need to be concerned with moral principles or be concerned with moral principles, but to hell with your happiness. Hmm. But is there a line that we kind of need to draw at being selfish or is this not the right way to think about it? Because I would think that being selfish at a harm to another is not so moral. Well, the question is, what is actually to your interests? And by my view, the interests of human beings are in harmony. That is, the way that we actually gain values from other people, what, make, what, what, is, what is it about other people that um, enables them to be, offer, to be able to offer me values? It's their minds. It's their creativity. It's their honesty. It's their integrity. It's them being on a, a quest to pursue their happiness. And so the way that I access those values and can enjoy them for my own life is not by taking advantage of them or sacrificing them or treating them as kind of a means to my end. It's by trading with them. Now, I'm using trade here in a really wide sense. In the narrow sense, it's there's millions of people and billions of people on the planet who I only interact with indirectly. Right, I go to my grocery store and I give them some money and I get something that I value more than the money, which is my groceries. But trade, I think of as in a more expansive sense to mean I'm offering values in exchange for values. So with my friends, it's not like, well, I'll buy you dinner so that you'll spend some time with me. No, it's that the trade is spiritual in nature. It's that the value of being able to share part of my life with them and the value that I give them in terms of sharing my life the other way um, the, nobody's sacrificing for anybody else. And that genuine sacrifices, when you're actually taking advantage of and using people, I think is short-sighted and detrimental to your own well-being. And there's a lot to say about that, but just use some common sense for a second. If you start taking advantage of other people, they're going to use their brains not to find ways to um, build positive relationships with you, but to say, go the hell away, or if you are resorting to criminal means, we're going to use our intelligence to put you in jail. So they right. go from being potential aides to potential threats. And so it's in that sense that I think um, the, the way Ayn Rand would often put it is that what she's for is the pursuit of your own interests without sacrificing yourself to others or others to yourself. And that that's what actually promotes human well-being. Hmm.
but sadly that's not how majority of the world thinks about it they uh a lot of people at least uh, are driven by this idea of altruism morality that you have to sacrifice that you have to um you know do good for others even if it may be at a harm to yourself and essentially being selfish or pursuing your own rational self-interest is what enables these win-win situations that ultimately leads to a better world. And so, um, yeah, like, I, I guess we can turn to sacrifice, uh, the, cl the close counterpart of selfishness. And why does sacrifice and altruism at a broader societal level cause more harm and more problems than they solve? I mean, that, you know, we could do 10 hours on, but I'll say a few things. The first thing is that um, people might sit back and go, well, it doesn't seem like most of the time people are actually like walking around sacrificing themselves for others. And we'll come back to that. But part of what happens from the altruistic worldview, see, what altruism preaches is not be nice to other people or treat other people well. It says sacrifice yourself to other people. And part of the justification for that is a certain view of what human interests are. It teaches us that it is in our interest to be at each other's throats, to take advantage of other people. And so part of what happens and permeates society is precisely the idea of, well, look, you can either be a sucker and let other people take advantage of you, or you can make them the sucker and you can take advantage of other people. So it's precisely encouraging this war of all against all. And the and, and so that's one of the detrimental things is that it's in, pre, in preaching that we must sacrifice. It's empowering the people who want to rationalize taking advantage and manipulating others. But even setting that to the side for a second, like why do that? Think about your own relationships with people. I think this is always a helpful, it's way easy to become too academic if you're thinking about ethical issues, but like think in real life, do you really want your friends, the people you love and care about to be surrendering what matters to them, what gives them joy, what gives them satisfaction for you? If I was sick and I needed an operation I couldn't afford, I'm, I'm very well might go and ask for help from people. But if somebody said to me, well, look, Don, I'm trying to send my kid to school. I would love to help you right now. But like my daughter is my priority. I'm not going to have the view of, no, you should be setting aside what's most important to you for me. And indeed, uh, that I should be able, I have the right to force you to sacrifice your daughter's well-being for mine. I think that is, that's not what a good person, that's not how a good person thinks of other people. And I don't think it's how most of us in personal terms, deal with others. Um, and the people who do, it's seen as a really, really ugly thing. You know, I knew uh, a, a young lady who her father was basically laying on a guilt trip that she wouldn't set aside. She was, I think, graduating college and starting out in her career, that she wasn't setting that aside for an indefinite period to come take care of him given his medical issues. Like, I think anybody who's been a parent or hell, who's been a child looks at that and says, there's something really ugly about that, about the idea of you owe me. No, like, I only want what people want to give me. And if they, and if I, if they don't want to give me their time, their business, their help, then 
I don't own them. Their lives don't belong to me, and I don't have a right of one second of their time. What I, what I demand from other people is that if we can't reach a mutually advantageous, mutually fulfilling relationship, that we go our separate ways. And that's really, I think, what makes hum harmonious human relationships possible. We find mutually fulfilling ways to work together. And if we can't, you go your way and I go mine, and that's fine. Hmm. Yeah, another thing that may sound alarming to some is that love is selfish. Another transaction, as Rand wrote, to, to be able to say, I love you, you must know how to say the I before I love you. And that's, again, so counterculture when I first read that and just, yeah, completely different to what most preach about love as being, you know, this uncond unconditional kind of thing. And uh, you need to be selfless when you're talking about love and are in love. And I just like this, um, again, this selfish way of looking at love. And there's slightly a problem with the word selfishness and um, sacrifice and all that, because when a philosophy like altruism or any other is latent with moralistic language, it gets really hard to error correct. And so, you know, it's kind of hard to think in another way of the same word. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And so... <clears throat> um Look, I think in a sense, you can't escape the fact that love is selfish. Like uh, Ayn Rand would often give this example. Like, could you imagine if the lover, your lover says to you, oh, you give me no personal joy, but you need me and therefore I'm here for you. Like that would be appalling. It, and so in many ways, the fact, the selfish nature of love is like one of the greatest testaments to selfishness is you want somebody who has, gets enormous pleasure from being part of your life. That said, I get why people say it, but I actually think that people have a, a better, they're closer to my view of love than what altruism would have you think. For example, this idea of like, to, uh, say I love you, one must first be able to say the I, which comes from Ayn Rand's novel, The Fountainhead. Um, if, if you go into the psychology literature, I think a lot of people um, have gained value from attachment theory and its analysis of relationships. And one of the things that comes through in attachment theory is that a lot of relationships, why did they explode? It's because you have one partner who basically pulls the way in the face of intimacy and another partner who's anxious and is just, you know, trying to pull them closer in fear that they're going to go away. And what both people are missing is that self-confidence and self-esteem that they're not needy and they're not um, alarmed with the vulnerability that a relationship requires. In other words, you, healthy self-esteem on both partners' part is the basis for the best kind of relationships, the most solid kinds of romantic relationships you can have. One thing that I do think can be confusing, and I get why people would pull back from this idea of love is selfish. What is a sacrifice? Because if you're in a relationship, it's definitely not that you can just do whatever you want whenever you want to do it, and it's going to be a good relationship, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, like there's small things from, I want to watch this action movie, my partner wants to watch this romantic comedy, and we're going to have to accommodate each other. Maybe sometimes we'll switch off. Maybe we'll just go, well, let's, what's a third option that isn't either of our favorites, but we'd both be invested in? So there's ways that you make accommodations. I don't regard that as a sacrifice. If you're viewing that as a sacrifice, you're viewing things too narrowly. A sacrifice is surrendering the 
what is more important to you for what is less important. The most important thing for me with my girlfriend is a healthy, inspiring, meaningful relationship, right? It's that that I'm trying to nourish. And what we watch on any particular night is a detail. And so, yeah, I'm going to accommodate her. She's going to accommodate me because we want to enjoy our time together in the best possible way. A Hmm. genuine sacrifice what it basically amounts to is one person shutting their mouth, pretending to want what the other partner wants, and then building up grievances and unhappiness over time that then usually explodes in some form and creates all kinds of havoc in the relationship. The most important thing you can do to ensure a good relationship is get really clear on what you want and really good at communicating what you want to your partner. And by the same token, you need a partner who's doing the same so that you guys can reach that mutually beneficial accommodation. But if people are just sitting around sacrificing all the time, it's not doing either partner any good. Yeah, I'm getting to watch more of the TV shows I want, but underneath the surface, what I don't realize is I'm losing the romantic partner that I want. And that's a tragedy. Yeah. And... Now let's think about people who value certain things more than absolutely their self. Um, we often hear that, you know, uh, patriotic soldiers, they sacrifice a lot. And essentially, they are willing to die for the nation. But are soldiers selfless, or sacrifi- sacrificial, or are they just choosing to act in accordance with their values? Well, soldiers are human beings, and so they do what they do for all sorts of reasons. And I think some of them are sacri- like actually sacrificing f- for the nations that they serve in a way that I wouldn't approve of. I think um, many times what they're really doing is they're fighting. They can be fighting for principles that they care about. I'm unwilling to live as a slave, and therefore I'm fighting for my freedom and the freedom of the people that I care about. And I don't regard that as a sacrifice. It's not sac- a sacrifice to courageously defend your values. Indeed, I think it's a it's a requirement of integrity. Or it's a requirement of living a good life. I think there's cases that are more mixed. If you if you talk to soldiers, I I was not in the military. My dad was a Navy pilot. I've spent a lot of time with military people. The most common answer that you get is something along: "I'm fighting for the men beside me," and today you might amend that to the men and the women beside me. And I think that sometimes can be sacrificial. Sometimes, and most of the time, I think it's not sacrificial. It's partly what you recognize is all of us are going to win or lose, live or die together. And so I've got your back, you've got mine. And I regard that like that can be completely and utterly selfish. It's I care about these people. I value them and I'm going to fight for them. So I think there's all kinds of motives. What we can say is that one need not be sacrificial in order to be a good soldier. Hmm. So I'm reading the Fountainhead currently, and there's a part where Howard Rourke, the protagonist, gets a commission for the Manhattan Bank Company. And let's just say that he needs this commission. And the bank is happy to give it to him, but they just need a slight alteration in the plan Howard had proposed. And so Howard tries explaining to the board that the change they're suggesting is not a good idea, but the board needs that change to happen. So Howard says he can't do it. He won't take the commission. Then I think it was the agent, some Weidler 
who says to Rourke that this is sheer insanity. I want you. We want your building. You need the commission. We have to be quite so fanatical and selfless about it. And then Rourke says, what? That was the most selfish thing you've ever seen a man do. And when I read that, I had my you know mind blown for a minute because, again, selfish here, it, it just means so different to the common language, uh, the common word usage of it. Or maybe it's different from for the other people. Like you and I might be using the word selfish now in another way as the other people commonly. But that, that's a, yeah, like, could you perhaps explain that? A little the the whole story uh, shortly. Yeah, well, so I mean, I think you gave a lot of the context. The thing that I'll stress that I don't think you stress is Rourke is an innovator. He wants to. He has a vision of what architecture should be, of what great buildings are, and the core of what he thinks a great building is is it's integrated. It has integrity. It has a central idea that determines every element of it. And in that sense, he's an artist. If you think about what makes great art, it is that integration, that it has a profound theme and every element is chosen to illustrate that theme down to the last detail. And so his view is, that's what I'm after in life, is to do great art as an architecture. And what this person is offering me is, yeah, some money for a job, but it means at throwing away what I'm after in life. The conventional view of what art is to your interests is often kind of boiled down to, oh, well, what your interests are is like money, status, and power. And what if a person was only concerned with their interests, all they would be concerned with is like getting as much money, status, and power as they could. And Rourke's view is that is so far from what is actually good for me. What I'm actually after in life is a career as a creator who's able to reshape the earth in the image of my values. And so for him, it's not a sacrifice to turn down somebody who says, hey, go do this other thing. I mean, imagine if you told Steve Jobs, who is, you know, um, famous for just being obsessing about like everything in our that we create has to be as simple and as oriented towards the customer experience as possible has to be like the ultimate in simplicity and beauty. And you said, Oh, well, Hey, you know, if we, um, throw on a few, few more features that a couple specialists need, maybe this will get really popular and we'll make an extra, you know, hundred million dollars or something like that. He'd say to hell with you. That's not what we're here for. We're here for to create the best product, not to eke out every last penny that we can in profit. Yeah, you want to maximize profit once you've created a beautiful product that you want the world to use. But you got to keep your priorities straight. And so, yeah, does Rourke want to make a lot of money? Sure, he wants to make a lot of money building the kind of buildings that he thinks are beautiful. And so anything less than that, he's not interested and I, I think that is what your orientation should be in life. What am I after? And anything that diverts me from that, even if it involves money, power, status, I'm not interested. It's there's nothing there's nothing in it for me. Yeah, um, that's powerful. I guess this is a question more about communication and expression of ideas. But you've written a book called Equal Is Unfair. And your book titled Effective Egoism is going to come out soon. 
How do you so well marry ideas that generally have a negative connotation tied to them with ideas that have a more positive connotation tied to them, just like in terms of writing style? Well, one thing you can say is, what is the purpose of a title? So um, a lot of what I do is coach people on communication skills. And a title, we live in a world which is amazing because never has there been more knowledge or at least in potential knowledge, information at our fingertips. That creates a problem though, if you're a content creator, as you probably have thought a lot about yourself, which is how do I cut through the noise and gain people's attention? And when you're talking about a content product like a book, the number one thing that is going to like basically... Um, the first way that people are encounter you will often be the title of the book or the uh, you know title of the piece of music or the title of the podcast or something like that. And so you want to think a lot about what's going to get attention. Now, I don't ever think you should sacrifice the, the, the um, accuracy for attention, right? Like, I don't think people who are will say or do anything for attention like i'm not interested in being that kind of person but it's similar to work it's once you're creating a beautiful building yeah try to maximize product uh um profit but you don't put profit first and yeah. i think it's the same thing with attention i have a message that i want to convey and therefore i want to convey it in the most interesting attention grabbing way possible and so what i'm thinking about is i'm writing a book on inequality and i think what the unique take of the book is that should really grab people and be interesting to them is um, equality is often seen as, well, this is what it would mean to, to, to care about justice. And then what conservatives traditionally would do is come back and say, oh, no, but we also have to care, care, uh, care about prosperity. So it's prosperity versus justice. Well, my book, and co-authored with Yaron Brook, is about justice. And our view is trying to equalize people economically is unjust. There's other forms of equality that are just. When you're treated equally before the law, regardless of your the color of your skin or your religion or something, like that, like that is a way of being just. But um, when you're talking about, we're going to penalize people who are more successful because they're more successful... And we're going to give unearned rewards to people who've been unsuccessful, even if it's their own damn fault. That is inherently unjust. It's treating people the same when their choices are radically different. So how do I boil that down into something that conveys my viewpoint in a way that's going to be gripping and intriguing? Equal is unfair. The, most people's reaction should be, huh? Tell me more. Right. Um, effective egoism is the same thing. I'm trying to present a positive view of egoism. And, you know, we live at a time when the effective altruism movement is very popular and, um, or at least let's call it has a wide audience. And part of what the book is doing is challenging their whole approach to ethics. And so it's, no, this is, this is a, completely un unconventional idea. Now I should say for me, this is pretty easy in the sense of many of my ideas are unconventional. You know, it's harder if you're saying the same, like if what you're trying to do is be a fitness coach and what you're telling people is, you know, lift three to five times a week, uh, keep your calories uh, at the right, like, okay, it's, it's a little bit hard. You have to probably take a different approach to the title, to your titles. Um, 
And there's nothing wrong with having conventional advice if you can deliver it well. But given what I'm doing is offering unconventional advice, that's just kind of one of my go-to ways of titling things. Hmm. What do you think objectivism is not so popular as the other philosophies like, you know, effective altruism and what have you? Um, I'll name two reasons. I think there's a lot of things. One is more fundamental and the second is more derivative. But um, the the first one kind of takes objectivists off the hook of <laughs> being responsible for the problem. The second one is me taking responsibility for the problem. So I say the 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 a major fundamental reason is that <clears throat> it's challenging the basic ideas that have dominated the world for 2000 plus years. And if you're challenging people at the deep, deepest levels, so this is not just like um, vote a little bit differently, um, that uh, think a little bit differently about morality and about philosophy. It's saying at the most, at the deep level, the level in which you've oriented yourself in life and based your self-esteem, most of what you think, or at least much of what you think, is really, really wrong. That's a hard sell. It's particularly a hard sell in a world where many people, though not the majority, are incredibly prosperous. Whatever our problems, we live better lives today than anybody in history. And now, if you, in that context, if you tell people you should rethink the entire philosophy that you've been brought up in, mm-hmm. at, at, even if it means like leaving your church, losing friends, getting disapproval from your parents, that's a very hard sell. But the second thing I'll say is we've been really bad at selling it. Not everybody. I mean, Ayn Rand was pretty good. I mean, she became incredibly famous and successful. Um, But you need more people to be doing things at that level of success in order to build an enduring, wide-ranging, influential, impactful movement. And I think that we have, by and large, not been as effective as we could have been as communicators. And that's a lot of what I do is trying to remedy that. So a lot of what I do day to day is working with other people who share Ayn Rand's philosophy, who want to be intellectuals and creators and helping them build successful, influential careers. And it's in recognition of the fact of we just haven't been good enough and that needs to change. Do you think there's a reason behind that? Because um, like merging the first problem with the second one, then I would think that, you know, if it's just such a hard sell, then maybe like we don't want to try calling out on people instead just focusing on their ideas not you know the kind of person they are or you know there's all sorts of labels that we can put to people but those really aren't helpful if we can you know propose the explanation a good explanation that we have and all of the uh, all of fine rands this theories then maybe just letting that clash with their worldview instead of you know them having a letting them have a uh, notion that you know this is gonna um like your like your thinking is messed up and like all that kind of stuff but letting the ideas these ideas and their ideas clash uh in their minds instead of you know um perhaps name calling or something like that have you thought about that i don't think that's the right level of analysis um in part 
it can definitely be true that if you run around just saying you guys are all irrational and I have the truth, nobody wants like nobody's interested in that kind of person. On the other hand, <clears throat> I'd say the most influential, impactful objectivist intellectual today is Alex Epstein, who wrote Fossil Future, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. He's trying to change the way people think about energy and environmental issues. And part of what he has to do and, and has done in order to be successful is you have to point out there's people with an anti-human philosophy who are controlling and shaping how we're all taught to think about energy and environmental issues. And so you can't avoid labeling in that sense. But it's not just an empty insult. Part of what that does is it helps the general person who doesn't want to be anti-human clarify, oh my God, what these people are trying to sell me as being creating a healthier planet for human beings is actually poison for human beings. Hmm. And so the, so there, are, there is a place for um, labeling bad things as bad and evil things as evil. But I would say at minimum, what you have to keep in mind is it has to be objective. So part of why nobody likes the dude who goes around and says, you guys are all irrational and I'm on the side of reason and freedom and so on is that's all arbitrary from the perspective of the listener. It's like, you've given me no reason to think that you're right about anything. And so, the, or if you, like, if you just walked around and saying, environmental, environmentalists are anti-human, which is what Alex doesn't do. He explains at great length why what they're preaching is anti-human in his essence. You need to make, you need to justify it. Like, my view is that if you're, dealing in the realm of ideas, everything you say has to be justified. And so the, the real issue is, can you make objective why you think something's good or bad or rational or irrational? And, and so whether or not your focus is on like labeling some people or some group or some ideology, I think those are all secondary considerations and it really depends on the context. Right. You mentioned justified and this leads me into epistemology, something else I wanted to discuss with you. So knowing how knowledge is created helps us to create it better. And if you have a good theory of knowledge, you can more easily filter out a lot of bad explanations by simply pointing out their epistemic fundamental flaws. And can you briefly but sufficiently describe Ayn Rand's objectivist theory of epistemology? Well, at the highest level, she's an advocate of reason. And reason for her is a is a faculty or capability that starts with sense perception and then allows us to abstract and go beyond sense perception. So we perceive this ball and that ball and that ball, and we form the concept of ball that allows us to gain knowledge about all balls everywhere and any time in history. And so it's what reason is, is the power to go from observation to beyond observation. And so her whole epistemology then is really about how do we do that? And when can we, how can we, how do we go wrong when we think we're doing that? And how do we make sure that we're going right? So there's a lot more to say about how that works, but in essence, it's all about, we have this power to go beyond observation. How do we tie our, um, abstract knowledge to reality to know that we haven't gone wrong in that process because we can go wrong in all sorts of ways, right? 
we can form generalizations that are over generalizations. We can group together things. I, I mentioned selfishness. If you're grouping together, say, a Bernie Madoff who takes advantage and defrauds people with the Howard Work or Steve Jobs who are creative creators who create abundance, um, the package dealing. There's all sorts of mistakes that we can make when we're at the conceptual abstract level. And what epistemology is really doing is saying, when have you made a mistake and when are you entitled to say, no, I, I've, I'm right, I have the right to regard this as knowledge. And I think many of her most important achievements, Ayn Rand's achievements are in epistemology. Um, it's probably the least appreciated part of her philosophy, but I think it's incredibly powerful. And it's also an area where I think there's a lot of good work like being done and re remaining to be done by people influenced by her. Hmm. Let me try and challenge that epistemology because I think it's flawed. And there's a lot of good stuff one can gain from Ayn Rand's philosophy, but I don't think we need to reject her philosophy entirely if we are to reject part of it. So the virtue of selfishness, capitalism, individualism, this is great stuff and you can take from it. But when it comes to epistemology, I don't think it's right. So allow me to challenge that objectivist epistemology. So um, you mentioned perceiving from the senses and gaining knowledge. Observation is not a source of knowledge. You cannot observe the quote-unquote facts of reality. Repeated observation is not going to get you one jet closer to the truth. The purpose of observation is only to test our theories. It's almost like appealing to the supernatural when you say that one can observe the facts of reality because how's that concept formation happening from the observation? I would think that all observation is theory-laden, as Karl Popper said. And just to you know, uh, bring up an example so that I can better explain this. So for millennia, our, our ancestors thought of stars in the night sky as these cold, dim, tiny pinpricks of light. And they used their senses to observe all that. But those aren't the facts of reality so far as we know it. Reality does consist of stars, but they're not cold. They're extremely hot. They're not dim, they're very bright. And they're definitely not tiny, they're pretty big. And we don't get there simply by observation. Our senses are actually quite misleading. And what we really do is begin with a problem and an existing explanation, existing knowledge that we have in our minds. We then use observation to check our conjectured explanations against reality. And we never arrive at final truth. No truth is, no idea is justified. In my, in my sense, everything we know is fallible, but that doesn't mean we can't know. Uh, that doesn't mean we know nothing. We, um, our knowledge speaks a great deal about reality, but it's just that we don't know whether they're ultimately right. And observation is always theory laden, and without theory, we wouldn't understand our observations or the world. So uh, there's kind of my glimpse. There's a glimpse of my understanding of knowledge, which. I got from the philosophy of Karl Popper, which David Deutsch improves upon in his books, The Fabric of Reality and The Beginning of Infinity. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think we can resolve this whole debate. There's a lot of complex things there. I'd say like the, the, I, I did an interview with a uh, philosopher, Jason Rines. So if you just search Don Watkins and Karl Popper, that's a little bit, I think goes into some of the weeds on these issues more than we can here. Um, and let me say, 
David Deutsch, I have a lot of respect for. I think he's a really interesting thinker. He really respects the power of the human mind. Um, he has this line that uh, I'm going to botch a little bit, but the essence of it is something like, you know, anything not ruled out by the law of physics is possible given the right amount of knowledge. And I think that is a profound insight about the power of the human mind. And so I have a lot of admiration for him. Um, the But on this point, the idea that perception is theory-related, it comes from a wrong view of what perception is. That is, the if you look at the history of philosophy, all of the attacks on perception, um, or at least let's put it, most of the attacks of perception, the basic error is that you're either attributing too little to what we get directly from observation or too much. And so what you're talking about is like perceiving the stars and we perceive them as cold and they're really hot. What that is, is it's attributing things to perception that aren't in perception. What you get with perception is just the raw sight of there's that, like the thing when I open my eyes, any description about it, you're now using abstractions. Oh, it's this, it's that. I'm inferring that it has a certain temperature. I'm inferring that it is a certain size. No, what observation gives you is just the raw thing that happens when you open your eyes and look up. But how then, and so the idea that that, that that raw seeing, feeling, tasting, touching is distortive, in the end, it's incoherent because Anytime you say, oh, I've discovered an illusion, I, I, I thought this thing was hot and now it's cold, you're just appealing to more sense data. You're appealing to more observation. And so you can't say, oh, like, well, what makes you think that this later data is any better than the earlier data? There's, so there's a lot to say. I, I have some videos where I go, where I talk about sense perception. Um, people can also look up a book by the philosopher Harry Binswanger called How We Know, which tackles this in more detail. Now, there is something plausible about the theory-ladenness of observation, which is that by the time we're adults, we've automatized so much conceptual knowledge that it's not like when I look at you, I see a human being and there, I see a room and I attribute you as a person sitting in a certain room and, um, you know, of a certain age and there's, you know, a male. There's all sorts of knowledge that without me even trying is automatically part of this um presentation of awareness of this kind of slice of awareness that we're engaged in right now. But the point is that that wasn't there from the time I was a baby. It was something acquired over time and automatized. And I'm able conceptually to strip it away from the actual act of perception. It's not like I can't set that aside and think intellectually, all right, well, what am I seeing versus what am I conceptually attributing to this moment? I can do that and I can question all of those inferences. But the actual act of perception is just the automatized, or I'm sorry, not the automatic awareness um, that comes from me interacting with the world. And there's nothing distortive about that. And there couldn't be anything distortive about that. So that's at least a start on where I think there's a, a differing. Hmm. Uh, yeah. The way I think of, you know, even seeing the world. So, since we're all human, like biological creatures, our biology is obviously the same. And even kids will see in the same way as we do. Uh, as far as we understand biology, there's like this light reflecting from a certain object that enters our eye. 
and then there's like just so much of processing going on over there and um you know like anyone in middle school high school biology knows like it has to enter the cornea it touches the lens and then it gets transferred into neural signals and then gets you know uh like there's these electrical crackles in the brain that we process again that the brain processes and that we understand as what we see and so again i i, I don't well, know there's if- a huge huge error so th- that what you said is right insofar as it goes, but there's a huge error. And this goes back to the beginnings of philosophy, but it really, um, a lot of it in the way that we're taught to think about it comes from the philosopher Kant, who wrote in the late 18th century. What you described is how we perceive mm-hmm. the, the, the processing. And what often happens is that gets conflated with what we perceive. Oh, we don't perceive objects in reality. We perceive the light bouncing off our retina. No, no, no. You're confusing the what and the how. That's how we perceive the object. But what we perceive is the object. And the and what Kant said is basically the only way that you could perceive an object as it really is, is if there was no processing, if there was no how. And Rand's view, which is the right view in my judgment, is there has to be a how. There has to be a process. All knowledge is processed knowledge. And indeed, how did you learn that there was light bouncing off objects and going into a retina? Da, da? It's because there's you can perceive objects. You could never have gotten to that if all you were perceiving was a process that's disconnected from the world. And so the the the, the whole way that we're taught that we need to really, really be careful when we're distinguishing the what and the how. They can be distinguished, but the how is just how we perceive the what. And it it's not distortive. Um, it's not the... Um, it, it doesn't prevent us from getting at reality as it really is. There is no reality as it really isn't. It's how we access reality. Knowledge is processed. Like that, you couldn't have knowledge apart from processing. Indeed, the whole incoherence of religion is, oh, we, you know, God has kind of unprocessed knowledge and then we're lame because we actually have to have some means of knowledge. But I mean, it's the, um, the, the processing, it's really valuable to know about the how, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't change the what. Sure. I think I'll need to look into your YouTube videos and kind of yeah trying to understand and let me just and and this is let me just give you an example a quick easy to uh, think of example about we actually aren't confused by this in real life so for instance um you know go stand uh i have my phone here right i see it and i feel it two different howls same what neither of them is a distortion even though they're radically different right i have a radically different sense modality And yet it's the same object. There's no contradiction between what I see and what I feel. It's just more kinds of information about the object. So even if our senses or let's say an alien had senses that worked in a radically different way, all that would be is a change in the how, no different from the change between um, feeling and sight for us. It, It doesn't lead to different laws of physics, just like blind people don't reach different conclusions about the laws of physics. Because what we have is just different um, variations in the how, not the what, not the object of knowledge. Hmm. 
Let's switch gears and turn to the final topic I wanted to speak to you on, wealth creation. So there's this political and economic movement called degrowth that's gaining traction. I think it's a very anti-human movement, and I'm curious what you think of it and progress and wealth creation in general. <clears throat> you mentioned before, which you know, maybe should be a non-controversial point. You know, we're biological creatures, right? We're living organisms. Um, and as living organisms, we have survival needs. <clears throat> and part of our survival needs are physical things that we need in order to survive. We need material resources. We can't survive without material resources. And wealth is what material, the material resources that human beings need to survive. Wealth is things that we've used our mind to transform for the betterment of human life. And that is our means of survival. Human being, if you think about like most other animals, it's they kind of poke around their environment for ready-made values to consume, right? Like I have a cat and if I set aside, you know, the fact that I have to like slavishly feed them every day, if they were out, you know, went outside in the wild, they have to look around for mice. And if there's no mice to be found, you know, birds. And if there's no birds to be found, it's going to be a bad day, bad week for the cat. What the cat can't do is gather up a whole bunch of mice, breed them and create a little mouse farm where now that like, you know, my cat Alfie can just have like manufacture tiny little victims. Human beings have this transformational power. We can gather up the things in reality and rearrange them. This is a, a, a part of Deutsch's uh, insight, right, is we have this massive power to use knowledge to make right. the world so much more hospitable to human life because the world absent our activity, our thought and action is completely inhospitable. Like, basically, what you could think about the universe as just this perfectly designed thing that's trying to kill you. And that our intelligence, though, gives us this magnificent power to rearrange it for the betterment of human life. And that is wealth creation. And what the degrowth movement really is, is it is saying that um, human beings shouldn't do that. Everything else is the natural. So when Alfie goes and kills mice in order for his betterment, that's natural. That's okay. But whenever we use our means of survival to thrive, that's unnatural and therefore evil. And so it is in its essence an anti-human movement. Um, and... I mean, we could get into like the motives of it or everything, but I think most people are not anti-human. What they what they'll find appealing it in it is a few things. One is that they think that what wealth production does is it takes this plentiful universe that would be so hospitable if only we um, didn't overconsume, if only we you know, lived very humble, quiet lives. We'd have all that we needed, but that's BS. I mean, you have to know almost nothing about human history to realize that there is no living in harmony with nature. There's only dying in harmony with nature. Sure. Human beings have to manipulate the world around them and manipulate our environments in order to survive. And that, and certainly if we're thinking about human survival as human flourishing, which is making ourselves in the best position to survive, you need radical transformation. But that transformation does not consist of basically taking plentiful resources and just gobbling them up. It's creating resources through the human mind and making the planet more livable. 
And yeah, that means building factories, building roads and everything, but it also means preserving the best parts of nature. It means um, find, it means putting ourselves in the best relationship with our environment as possible from the perspective of human life. And that's something that we've, we've gotten better and better at doing. The reality is that we have never had a better environment for human beings, one where we're more able to conquer disease, to ensure that we have plentiful food, to ensure that we can go out and enjoy nature. Do you think people 300 years ago were walking around going, oh, I love all this nature? No, you're trying not to starve to death or be eat, killed by malaria or whatnot. And so uh, I think it's a pernicious movement that doesn't value human life. And the only way that it gets across is by portraying the other side in a way that is just flat out wrong, which is that it's environmentally destructive. No, we're environmental improvers, and but we should improve it. But improvement requires impact. It requires transforming the world, not leaving it in an untouched state. And what they do is they want to prioritize untouched nature or wilderness above human well-being. Hmm. Yeah, as Jacob Bernaski said in The Ascent of Man, we're not humans, we're not like a, figure in the landscape or a shaper of the landscape. And uh, the reason the environment is so hospitable right now is because we made it so. Essentially, if there is a mother nature, she's quite a bitch. <laughs> and uh, she's been, you know, trying to, like, there's all sorts of dangers that are coming from her. And uh, we, with our technology, are able to improve upon nature, improve upon the environment, and better able to help create a flourishing environment for ourselves and other animals as well like uh we do care about biodiversity and like we may be the only animals that care about other animals um in sort of a rational way and uh, that i think is yeah pretty cool about humans that's why i think the right way to hold it is i want the best relationship with uh my environment as possible because that means different things like uh, you know, I, I there's animals that I love and they're my pets. There's animals that I, I wouldn't keep as pets, but like, like I am fascinated by bears. I think they're amazing, but they can also be threats. So I don't want them traipsing around in my backyard and eating my children. Right. So, um, and then there's things that are outright pests and threats to human well-being, like mosquitoes, in which case my view is like you eradicate them. So that there, it's not that you are like to hell with nature or untouched nature is God. It's that you have to think about what's the right relationship to have with all these things and pursue it accordingly from a pro-human orientation. Do you think there's a necessary role that government functions in society? Or, yeah, what are your thoughts on anarcho-capitalism? Oh, well, yeah, the... Um... We've talked a lot about the incredible values that other people have to offer. And if you think even more widely about the values of living in a society, they're enormous. The two basic ones being knowledge and trade is that, I mean, the fact of like you and I, where do you live roughly? I'm not asking for your address, but like, okay. Yeah. The fact that we live across the globe and right now we're learning from each other, like that's an amazing part of living in a human society. But not every society allows human beings to thrive and achieve knowledge and achieve trade and pursue their own interests. Other people can also be threats to us. And 
in particular, if they take up arms against us, if they're using brute force against us. I said before that the right way to interact is that we interact in mutually, um, in mutually advantageous and mutually fulfilling ways, or we go our own way. Well, you can't do that if somebody's waving a gun at you. It's precisely, I can't go my own way. They're forcing me to act against my own vision, my own initiative, my own interests. And so other people can be incredible threats. Like we would be better off basically living like, you know, with a, a couple of friends in the forest than we would in like the Soviet Union tyranny or North Korea or something like that. And so what is it that allows us to have a society where we can all flourish at the same time and go our separate ways as individuals if we don't see eye to eye on something is you need a free country. But a free, but freedom is not a default. Freedom is a huge achievement. And in particular, it requires an objective legal system that says, all right, how are we going to treat people suspected of committing a crime? How are we going to prove that they committed a crime? How are we going to make sure that we don't punish people in a way that's unjust? How are we going to how are we going to protect the good and penalize the bad? Doing that is an achievement. It took human beings thousands of years to figure out how to do it, even like half-assed well. And what anarchism really amounts to is, no, let's throw all of that achievement out. And hey, if we just kind of go out and do whatever we feel like, I'm sure it'll work out. It's such an... Um, it's ignoring facts about human nature and human history on such a grand scale that in practice, if everybody can unilaterally use force against each other, what you have is gang warfare. And the anarchists are like, well, here, let me tell you why you'll like my kind of gang warfare. I'm sure it'll work out great. It's so diluted and removed from reality. And it ignores the awe-inspiring achievement of countries like the United States, um, even countries that I think like... Uh, uh, are like flawed in many ways are way better than an anarchist alternative. I would way rather be in India than in a place where what you have is warring tribes, like duking it out. And so even if you have a grip on semi-freedom, you should be really proud of that and happy and appreciative of it, even as you fight for something better. And so like in the United States, I think there's many flaws in the country and certainly historically many flaws, but what they did get right, the founding fathers of this country got right that I really admire and I think is like a, a sacred achievement is they got the right goal, the right ideal that what you want is a system that protects the rights of the individual to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now we actually have to realize that ideal and that's a long, hard road in part you have to figure out what does that ideal really mean? What does it mean to have a country dedicated to the rights of the individual? But that's the right goal and the closer we can get to that goal, the better. Um, and what anarchism is, is no, throw out the goal. It's you can use force against whoever you want and I can use force against whoever I want. And yeah, I understand they have a whole bunch of rationalizations for how they say it's going to work out, but I just regard those as they're either gullible or dishonest because we've we've seen anarchy in practice over and over it's really the default it we it the, when human beings don't succeed in organizing in political organization and social organization what you're left with is anarchy mm -hmm. and no and human beings cannot thrive in that kind of position sure lastly I guess we could just tie it all up together uh, by 
I want to get your idea of happiness and how you think about happiness and the pursuit of happiness. I think happiness is the noblest thing we can aspire to and achieve. But to get that, you have to get that happiness is not like some trivial, I feel great right now. I had a good time last night. All those things are fine. Like it's, if you're feeling good, I'm uh, more power to you. That's a great thing. Having fun, love it, all for it. But happiness is a certain perspective on your life as a whole. It's that I'm achieving the most important things in my life and I'm on the, on the path to even better things in the future. When somebody tells you that they're happy, uh, I, I was on an interview show a few years ago um, and the host was asking me and some of my other like colleagues, like, are you happy? And it's a good question, but it's also a really personal question because in the end, when you tell somebody whether you're happy or not, if you're being honest, it's a verdict on the most personal issues in your life, on your sex life, on your psychology, on your self-esteem, um, the state of your friendships, like your health, like you're, you're saying a lot, but as a, as the goal we should be going for happiness, meaning that I'm my, I'm in the best possible existential and spiritual state in life. I feel confident. I feel purposeful. I feel excited about what I uh, am looking forward to in life. And I'm getting lots of pleasure from my life. Like that is the best, highest state that we can aspire to. But to get there, you can't do it by the seat of your pants. It really requires reflecting on what goals should I be after in life and what kind of moral principles are required to achieve those values. I think that if you really want happiness, morality and thinking in moral terms is the only way to get there. That's the whole goal of my book, Effective Egoism, is going to be what really is happiness? What are the values that are required to achieve it? And what are the principles and virtues that are required to get those values? But if you get there, there's no better state that a human being can have. And there's... um. There's no bigger tragedy than people who go through life without being as happy as they could be. Well, Don, I want to thank you for your time. How can people um, get a hold of your stuff? How can they reach out to you? Uh, best way is to follow me on Twitter at Don's Writing, um, all one word. And, uh, you know, that's that's basically where I put out all my content and talk about all my projects. And, you know, I try to be really responsive, um, whatever, whatever its flaws, Twitter's cool and that you can just really have amazing conversations with like anybody you'd ever want to have a conversation with. Awesome. Thank you.